Welcome. And page 18 in your notebooks. And if you need a notebook, there are some over on the counter here. But we'll pick up where we left off on page 18. Before we do that, on scattered on the chairs are these flyers for this Reformation conference that I've been advertising in the church-wide emails the last few weeks, so I've attached this to those emails, I think, three times. But it starts Friday, Friday night, and it's at uh, Huron Baptist in Flat Rock, and it just looks like it's going to be a spectacular thing uh, with a great lineup of speakers. And on the back, it tells you what the schedule is. So it's all about the Reformation. If you're able to make any of that, you'll benefit from it. So I just wanted to get that in your hands. So the power of the papacy continued to grow in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, generally 500 to 1500. And that was the power of the papacy, the power of the Pope, was buttressed by the false claims contained in the pseudo-Isidorian decretals that I mentioned last week. If you weren't here last week or for any of the weeks, the recordings are on the website. But pseudo, we said last week, means false in the name of someone named Isidore. So that's why it's pseudo-Isidorian. And it is these documents that make claims about the power of the papacy and including donations made to the Pope by Roman emperors. And the most famous of these is one called the Donation of Constantine. So a donation made by the Emperor Constantine. And uh, this uh, document, it turns out, was written in the uh, 9th century, the 800s. It was shown to be a forgery in 1440. So for hundreds of years it had held sway that the popes had been given large tracts of land and power. And so it increased the power and prestige of the papacy. So with that, the Pope's power not only continued, but it it grew. And we saw last week that in the year 800, a famous event occurred where the Pope crowned the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles the Magnificent, or Charlemagne. Uh, The Pope crowned him. And that was symbolic of the power of the church over the state. Now, one of the things that I want you to note is that Charles' palace was in Germany. And I made that point last week because we're going to see that some of the areas that would play a prominent role in the Reformation that would come in the 16th century, but some of those areas, like Germany, where the Reformation started, uh, held a long resentment for the Pope exercising power over the over Germany, over places like England, as we're, as we're going to see. So what happened in 800 with the Pope crowning Charlemagne set a precedent as with the Pope as kingmaker that would go on for several, for several centuries. So on page 18, we left off at Roman numeral 2, the zenith of papal power. And we're going to look at the zenith of the height of papal power vis-a-vis, that is, as it relates to 
the state, and then vis-a-vis the church as well. And as it relates to the power of the Pope over the state, it involved a few things. I have them listed there for you on page 18. One is the lay investiture controversy. Lay investiture. So the idea here is that laymen, people who were not church officials, local magistrates, kings, could or or engaged in the practice of investing uh, priests with their authority. And the Pope took umbrage at that. The idea that a local official could invest uh, a church official with his position. And so the popes took action against that. They took action against these magistrates doing this, investing in in priests their office. So I have a quote here from Earl Cairns' history book, Christianity Through the Centuries. And he says, he, and then I have to apologize, it says Pope Leo. It's not Pope Leo. So if you have a pen, it's uh, it's not even close to Pope Leo, as a matter of fact. It's Gregory, Gregory VII. It's Pope Gregory VII, and the year is 1073. 1073. So Gregory VII worked directly for his ideal of a theocracy. Theocracy, a democracy, demos is uh, Greek for people. A democracy is government by the people. Theocracy, theos is Greek for God, so government by God. So he worked directly for his ideal of a theocracy in which temporal as well as spiritual power would be exercised by the Pope as the vice regent of God. He wanted no civil power to dominate the Roman church. Instead, the church was to control the civil power. For this reason, he dedicated himself to the abolition of lay investiture, the practice by which clerical leaders, that is priests, received the symbols of their office from their feudal lord, who was usually uh, a layman. Now, by the time of another pope, a later pope, Pope Innocent III, who was Pope from 1198 to 1216, the papacy had reached the heights, the very heights of its powers. I'm going to read to you a fairly long excerpt from uh, Earl Cairns on uh, Pope Innocent and his power. He says, Innocent III quickly took up the challenge of the rulers of the rising nation-states of France and England after his ascension to the chair of Peter. He used his power first against Philip of France in order that he might demonstrate that not even a king could flout the moral law of God concerning marriage. Philip had married a woman from Denmark after the death of his first wife. When his bride came to France, he took a dislike to her and he claimed that he had been bewitched. He forced the French bishops to annul the marriage and he took another woman into his home as his wife. The first one appealed to the Pope for redress. Pope Innocent thereupon ordered Philip to put away that uh, second wife and to restore the first to her place as his lawful wife. When Philip, now this is the king of France, he refused to do that, Innocent placed France under an interdict in the year 1200, an interdict. I'll explain what that is in, in a bit. 
But it affected everyone in the nation, and uh, it was uh, it caused an uproar. And the uproar that the interdict created all over France forced Philip to submit to the Pope. And with bad grace, he sent the first wife away, or excuse me, the second wife away, he brought back the first to the palace as his wife. The original wife was still not happy, but Pope Innocent, by the use of spiritual weapons, had forced the ruler of one of the great new nation states to obey the moral law. So here's the Pope able to make a king knuckle under and then it goes on, between the years 1205 and 1213, Pope Innocent was able to defeat John of England. So this was Philip of France earlier, now this is John of England, in a contest over the election of an archbishop to the vacant archbishopric of Canterbury. Both the archbishop, elected by the clergy of the archbishopric, and the nominee forced on them by John were set aside by the Pope when the question of his confirmation of the appointment of a particular person uh, arose. John refused to accept the Pope's replacement, and Innocent then excommunicated John in the year 1209 after placing an interdict upon England in the year 1208. John was forced to humble himself because the English people rose up against him. And Philip of France, that's the other guy we just talked about, Philip of France, at the invitation of the Pope, was only too happy to have an excuse to invade England. John, this king of, of England, acknowledged that he had held his kingdom as the feudal vassal of the Pope. Let me just stop there. He had to acknowledge that the only reason I'm a king is because you, the Pope, have allowed me to be. That's what it's saying. And he agreed to pay a thousand marks annually to the Pope. This payment was not finally repudiated until the time of the English Reformation. So it gives you an idea of the height of power that the Pope had acquired, that he could make kings knuckle under. And one of the tools that were often used was this thing that you heard me read about, the interdict. And that's at the bottom of page 18, the interdict. So Karen's mentioned the interdict a couple of times in what I just read as it was applied to the rulers of English, England and France. Now, what was the interdict? It meant this. It meant that churches were closed. It meant that mass, therefore, could not be administered. Now, you remember what we saw about the significance of the mass, the Roman Catholic mass, that this is a re-crucifixion of Jesus for the covering of sins. So now people's eternal souls are at stake. If the churches are closed and the priests are not allowed to offer mass, you can see why this is a powerful tool because the people in that country will immediately rise up against the ruler and say, do whatever you've got to do. Bow before the Pope, pay the Pope, whatever you've got to do so that we can resume, uh, we can resume with, with mass top of page 19 you see another yet another example of this in the conflict between the pope and henry the fourth cairns uh, says this henry called a council in january of 1076 at worms that's germany again so now we're back in germany and the council rejected papal authority Pope Gregory met this rejection by his 
of his authority by excommunicating Henry and releasing all his subjects from allegiance to him. So the Pope says, you're kicked out of the church, Henry. And he says that the citizens that are under Henry no longer have to follow him. This was as bold a step as any Pope had ever taken in a dispute with a temporal power. Henry capitulated and with his wife and baby son crossed the Alps in the winter of 1077 to meet Gregory at Canossa. It was a difficult journey. And when Henry finally reached Canossa, Gregory let him stand barefoot in the snow outside the gates of the palace on three successive days before he would admit him to his presence. And he then released him from his sentence of excommunication. Yikes. So you see now the Pope is able to use his spiritual powers. And these spiritual powers are his because one's eternal destiny is bound up in their relationship with the church. If you're not in right relation to the church, you're not going to go to heaven. And who determines ultimately if you're in right relation to the church? That's the Pope. So the church holds the keys to your eternal destiny. And now with that, you can make anybody knuckle under. So he was able to do that with Henry in Germany. He was able to do that with Philip in France. I have listed there for you. And John of England. Germany and England ended up being very prominent places where the Reformation took hold very quickly. And part of the reason that the Reformation took hold so quickly in those places is because of history like this that led to resentment against the authority and abuses of the, of the Pope. So that's the height of papal power as it relates to the state. And then there's papal power as it relates to the church itself. And I have that on page 19 where the popes boldly proclaimed that there was no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Salvation is exclusive to the Roman Catholic Church. So Boniface VIII, who was pope from 1294 to 1303, claimed that neither salvation nor remission of sins could be found outside the Roman Church, that the pope had spiritual and temporal authority overall, and the submission to the pope was necessary to salvation. These ideas were repeated by Pius IX in 1863. So it's not just these middle medieval, middle age popes, but as late as 1863, you have Pius IX saying the same thing. So as it relates to the church, the church is where it's at. And if you're not in right relation to the church, then you have no hope for your eternal soul. And the Pope's power was seen as well in uh, his ability to order the Crusades. I have that listed for you there, the Crusades. And many of you are at least vaguely familiar with the Crusades. And that is uh, Christians Christians uh, going to the Holy Land to free the Holy Land from domination by Muslims. Muslims had taken over Jerusalem and Palestine. And... In the year 1096, a sermon was delivered by one of the popes, Popes Urban, 1096. And that provoked the first of the four major crusades. They couldn't even do that right, could they? The crusades? Yeah. Well, they did. They actually did okay the first time. Um, 
in the first in the first crusade, if by doing it right you mean winning. Yes. Okay. In the first crusade, they did. The first crusade lasted uh, nearly four years, 1096 to 1090, 1099, and they did actually succeed in in taking it back. However, uh, there a portion of what they had taken back was conquered by the Muslims again. And so there was a second crusade in the year 1146. And then they failed. They failed to take back what had been conquered by the Muslims, around an area around Jerusalem. And after that, the Muslims ultimately recaptured Jerusalem again. So then there was a third crusade. That third crusade was in 1189. Three years, 1189 to nearly four years, to 92, 1189 to 1192. But they failed again to win back the uh, Holy Land. But uh, they did secure an agreement with the Muslim ruler in Jerusalem to allow Christian pilgrims access to Jerusalem. So Christians who wanted to visit the Holy City were allowed to do that. And then, you see, I say that there were these four major crusades, including the Children's Crusade. And this was one of the saddest episodes in all of the Middle Ages. In the year 1212, 1212, uh, thousands of children marched across Europe to go to the Holy Land and gave their lives, uh, assuming that the purity of their lives would somehow motivate God to have them succeed where their more sinful parents had failed. And these children were slaughtered as, as a result. So you see the, uh, the power of the Pope in a number of ways. And he was able to mobilize in that first crusade. I say there on page 19, over a million people participated in that, that first crusade. So we have seen the development of the Bishop of Rome, why the Bishop of Rome acquired the kind of prestige that, that he did because he was seated in Rome, because the capital of the empire moved from Rome to Constantinople, leaving a vacuum of power. Then you have the pseudo-Isidorian decretals. Uh, and over time, you have what would have been a spiritual power exercising political power as well, even to the heights that I've talked about here. So with all of that, the stage is set for the Reformation now. And if you look on page 20, the title of this lesson is Pre-Reformation Reformers. So before the Reformation, before Martin Luther, before John Calvin, before Ulrich Zwingli, you have Pre-Reformation Reformers. And we'll introduce you to some of those in this lesson. Top of page 20. Thus far in our study, we've seen the descent of the church from its biblical and apostolic beginnings to an enormous political and ecclesiastical machine. Eventually, the errors of the past resulted in a corrupt church ruled at times by tyrants who controlled men's material lives as well as their souls. However, not everyone countenanced the corruption of the church. These reformers were predecessors of the formal, formal movement known as the Protestant Reformation. These courageous believers planted the seeds of reform that eventually resulted in the doctrinal purity that is our heritage. 
So now we'll start to look at some of the people who became the movers and shakers that gave rise to the uh, the Reformation. And one of those groups is the Waldensians. You see that uh, under number one. The 1200s through the present, there are still in northern Italy about 35,000 Waldensians. So they still exist. They were so named because of their founder, Peter Waldo of France. And what did they believe? Well, first, they believed that every man should have the Bible in his own tongue and that it should be the final authority for faith and life. The Bible should be the final authority for faith and life. Christian History Magazine says they wanted only to be a group of laypersons who were collaborating for a precise goal, in this case, to preach the gospel. This dedication to preaching provoked a strong reaction from the church, which led to their excommunication as heretics. So they would they denied that you had to have ordination papers in order to give the gospel, preach the gospel. The church took umbrage at that. So they were excommunicated for preaching the gospel. And thirdly, they were convinced, says Christian History Magazine, that when the church becomes a worldly power, it loses its spirit. The strength of the moment in history in which they believed this betrayal took place was the 4th century, when Christianity was consecrated as the state religion by the Emperor Constantine. So we've already looked at that as a momentous time, when Constantine was converted, and then he made Christianity cool, and then the, as a result the church became worldly, and they pinpointed that very thing. That event, which is generally considered a great victory, was in reality, according to the Waldensians, the beginning of the church's decline. It was a compromise with the world. We, said the Waldensians, are the true disciples because we deny the donation of Constantine. So there's that document I was telling you about. And they're saying that the church does not have this kind of power, even if a magistrate or an emperor like Constantine wants to confer it upon us or upon the church. So you have the the Waldensians. And then you have people like, uh, just a few years after the Waldensians started, you have John Wycliffe. And some of you are familiar with that name, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, And that's because he was about translating the Bible. and He wanted people to have the Bible in their hand. So here are some of the things that John Wycliffe believed on Scripture. He declared the right of every Christian to know the Bible and that the Bible emphasized the need of every Christian to see the importance of Christ alone as the sufficient way of salvation without the aid of pilgrimages, of works, and the Mass. So how do you think that's going to go over with the uh, church? He said, Holy Scripture is the preeminent authority for every Christian and the rule of faith for every human perfection. So he believed that the Scriptures were the final authority like the Waldensians did as it relates to the Pope's authority. He said, I deny that the Pope has any right to political dominion or that he has any perpetual civil dominion. And of the Pope's pronouncements, sometimes called papal bulls, that's an unfortunate historical name, but that's that's what it was called. 
And he says, as they ought to be, the papal bulls will be superseded by the Holy Scriptures. The veneration of men for the laws of the papacy, as well as for the opinions of modern doctors, will be restrained with due limits. What concern have the faithful with writings of this sort unless they are honestly deduced from the fountain of Scripture? By pursuing such a course, it is not only in our power to reduce the mandates of prelates and popes to their just place, but the errors might also be corrected and the worship of Christ well purified and elevated. That's a mouthful, but you get yourself in trouble saying that. Notice, he's saying that the Bible, the scriptures, will correct the Pope's errors. So what was his influence? Wycliffe died officially orthodox. That is, he was not, he was not excommunicated. Uh, now, the reason in all likelihood that he was not excommunicated is he was one of the first to start doing this. But as... Uh, in fact, Wycliffe is often called the morning star of the Reformation, the morning star of the Reformation. But once what Wycliffe taught took hold, now the church began to take it more seriously. But they figure this will pass. And so he died, but he died officially orthodox. In the year 15, excuse me, 1415, the Council of Constance burned John Huss at the stake. And they also then condemned Wycliffe on 260 different counts. But he was already dead. They condemned him after he was dead. The council ordered that his writings be burned and directed that his bones be exhumed and cast out of consecrated ground, out of a church cemetery. Finally, in 1428, at papal command, the remains of Wycliffe were dug up, burned, and scattered into the river. You just got to wonder what guys are thinking. We'll show Wycliffe. Well, you know, I think Wycliffe's cool. I think he was all right with that. He's already in heaven at that point. So you have Wycliffe, and Wycliffe influenced the aforementioned John Huss. Huss was killed for his beliefs. But he had read and he had adopted the ideas of Wycliffe. He proposed to reform the church in Bohemia, that is Czechoslovakia, along lines similar to those proclaimed by Wycliffe. Even though the church took John Huss's life, it could not destroy his influence. The teachings and example of Huss were inspiration to Luther as he faced similar problems in Germany in his day. So you see now the stream. That's why Wycliffe is called the Morning Star. And he influenced Huss. And Huss influenced Luther. So you have this now stream of guys that are proclaiming these ideas that the scriptures are the final authority, not the church, not the Pope. And once you have people focusing on the scriptures, now they're going to focus on what the scriptures say about salvation. That takes power away from the church. And then we're going to see that kings and magistrates in Germany and in England seized upon this as their chance to now finally liberate themselves from the power of the Pope. So the stage is set with these pre-Reformation reformers. Here's another, Tyndale, William Tyndale. He, too, was influenced by Wycliffe. Christian History Magazine says both Wycliffe and Tyndale appealed for the Bible to be released to the people in English. 
Both assumed that the Bible could be understood in its literal meaning without ecclesiastical assistance and years of training. Both feared that the church authorities were intentionally trying to hide God's law while attempting to impose man's law. Both said that morality was essential for salvation and that to know what God required, man must have easy access to his law. Both said that those obeying God's law would always be a minority because the church was by definition the elect small flock among the larger mass who obeyed the Antichrist. Both claimed that the Church of Rome was poisoned by wealth and both called on the king to discipline the church and thereby push it to fulfill its spiritual role. And Tyndale was aided immensely by Gutenberg, the invention of the printing press. So you think about in God's good providence, you have these people coming along and then at the same time, you have Gutenberg inventing uh, something that's going to allow dissemination of their ideas, but more importantly, of the Bible itself. So bottom of page 21, the invention of the printing press in 1450 greatly enhanced the ability to reproduce Tyndale's translations for distribution. Perhaps no other invention is more responsible for the Protestant Reformation than the, the printing press. Now, Come to page 22 and you get to the Reformation proper. The Reformation and in, in Germany and England and the Counter-Reformation. So we're going to talk about those uh, beginning next week. Uh, what I'd like to do for most of our remaining time is show you a clip from the DVD that I started with the very first week. I showed you a small portion of that. Uh, today I've got about 20, I think it's about 25 minutes, 27 minutes uh, on the Reformation itself. It starts with Martin Luther, Martin Luther's birth, his upbringing, and what led him to finally ignite the, the Reformation. So we'll pick it up on page 22 next week, assuming I can get this thing going. So I'll give it a, give it a whirl. November the 10th, 1483. In the little town of Eisleben, about 120 miles southwest of modern Berlin, Martin Luther is born. One day later, he is baptized. In the eyes of the church, Luther's soul is officially cleansed. Within the Catholic Church, original sin was washed away by baptism. And then in your life you might commit sins, but you could repent of them, and there was a process to do that. As an infant, he is assured entrance into heaven when he dies, which in this perilous time could happen any moment. Well, this is a period of very high mortality rate and low life expectancy. Uh, the plague came back regularly, at least once or twice in a generation, never in a predictable time. But we also had massive epidemics of typhoid, of influenza, of all kinds of things. The world in some ways was a very scary place. And the role of faith was to provide encouragement and support and comfort during the crises of life. The church would be omnipresent in people's lives, right? How they would mark time would be church bells. How they would mark the stages of their life would be the various sacraments of the church, from baptism to extreme unction at the end. The saints and relics were a key part of uh, medieval religiosity in, in the time of Luther as well. But pilgrimage was a big part of late medieval and early modern piety. 
It is that there's a place that had holiness. It was an imminence. Going to that place allowed you to share in that holiness, maybe be cured of some disease or some infirmity, but definitely it would help you in your path toward salvation. Martin Luther's father is a successful self-made businessman in the mining industry. His mother is a lawyer's daughter. Luther has more opportunities than most of his peers. So the powerful people in this world, well, they were obviously the princes, the nobles, the kings. And then below them, you would have perhaps merchants and craftsmen in cities. And below them, you have a vast mass of people who live in the countryside. Uh, if you wanted education, you went to the cities. Most estimates put the rate of literacy around 10%. As Luther grows, his father can see that he's extraordinarily intelligent. When Luther is 14, he is sent away to school where he excels. His father is very ambitious for his son, as many recently rich fathers are. He pressures Luther to go to law school, and he even buys him the, the Corpus Juris, which is this really big, expensive book of Roman law. Luther dutifully enrolls in law school, yet he's not sure he wants to be an attorney. He was known to his friends as somebody who had liked to have a good time. He was very good at playing the lyre, the equivalent of the guitar. At the age of 23, Luther takes a leap of absence from his studies. The course of his life changes dramatically, however, one evening when he is trapped outdoors in a severe thunderstorm. He's terrified. He's out in the woods by himself and lightning and trees falling all over the place and wild animals and, of course, robbers in the woods. And in the middle of all this, Martin Luther says, Saint Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. I think that's really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is Saint Anne is the patron saint of minors. But the other thing is that when he is caught in the thunderstorm, the things that he thinks would be most pleasing to God were to become a monk. Obviously, when he thought he might die, he was afraid of what would happen to him if he came before God. And to become a monk was understood to be the best way of finding ways of, of pleasing God, of walking in his ways, of drawing close to him. Luther wastes no time making good on his promise. Within months, he gives away all of his possessions, including the expensive law book his father bought him, and enters a monastery. When Martin Luther decides to join a monastery, he doesn't join some luxurious monastery where aristocracy would send their illegitimate children. He joins one of these reformed Augustinian monasteries that is trying to bring back the discipline of the early church. Because that is the religious ideal of the 16th century. That is what Catholics thought God would most want you to be, which is live a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. In that spirit, Luther holds nothing back. Praying, fasting, going without sleep, even flagellating himself. He was super scrupulous about everything he did. He was always examining his conscience. He, he was a Catholic's Catholic. Within two years, Luther is made a priest and begins theological studies. Luther embraces what he is taught, that God is perfect, demanding absolute obedience and unwavering faith. The burden of right relationship with God is on the sinner. One must obey God with one's own strength in order to receive grace. When one sins, 
one must repent fully and perform acts of penance. The church administers grace through the sacraments. The medieval church had many gradations of grace. You had the initial grace that was given through Christ's sacrifice, and then you had uh, many different kinds of specific grace that were also uh, given that could be obtained by acts of penitence, um, acts of forgiveness by the church. Those acts of penitence include good works. Good works mean going to church, going to mass, receiving the sacraments, going on a pilgrimage, giving to charities, making donations, and that a lot of people thought if you did enough of these things, that would outweigh all the sins in your life. And this was not exactly a theologically sound position, but I think most people in practice accepted that the idea of salvation was to have more merits than you had sin. And that most people, when they died, had a deficit. That is, they had more sin than merits. And that's why we have purgatory. A lot of people misunderstand the doctrine of purgatory. They think, uh, mistakenly, that the Catholic Church teaches that purgatory is a lesser hell, uh, which it is not. It's a place of spiritual maturation before we can enter into the all-holy presence of God. Those who have died still with attachment to sin, who have not done sufficient penance, or who have not been purified of the remnants of sin, those must be burnt away, as it were, in the purifying fire of God's love. In other words, you don't want to come before God, God in a grubby state of being, spiritually. So therefore, purgatory is the scrubbing station where your sins are scrubbed off you, and it's a passageway. You don't stay in purgatory, you move through purgatory, and the end result then is heaven. And this was seen as something that, in God's mercy, God offered to those after they died as a period of purification in preparation for their full entrance into heaven. In spite of this mercy, the emphasis on good works in the 16th century creates intense anxiety for many about their eternal fate. Of course, nobody in the medieval church doubted that God had initiated grace and given grace to believers through the sacrifice of his son. That was without any doubt. But there was the idea that you could somehow forfeit this grace. You could endanger it by your own personal sin. So most of medieval piety was, was directed to, to make up with God by your own actions. Luther himself is terrified that he will not be acceptable to God. His conscience is a dripping tap, always reminding him of his imperfection. Even his confession is motivated by a desire to save his own skin. Luther develops digestive difficulties and suffers from nightmares and panic attacks. He turns to his spiritual advisor for help. He was fortunate to have as his father confessor, the, the priest was, the monk was especially responsible for him, Johann Stalpitz, who had written a number of works that, that called on people to trust in the mercy of God and to trust him beyond their sins. Uh, and it was fortunate for Luther that he had someone who could listen to him and understand and, and counsel him to trust the mercy of God, even when he, he found that he himself was not living up to it. And he was deeply unsatisfied, and more than that, he was tormented. And he used to go to confession at least once or twice a day until his confessor finally said to him, look, wait until you've committed some real sins and then come back and see me. 
The turning point comes when Luther is made a teacher of the church at Wittenberg University. As he studies scripture and gives lectures, Luther begins to see familiar verses with new eyes. One in particular, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, hits him like a lightning bolt. The righteous shall live by faith. So Luther has this burst of insight when he's reading St. Paul that he sums up in a phrase like, through faith alone, through grace alone. And what he's done there is he's taken human effort out of the equation of salvation. That's something that was hard to believe in his day, it's hard to believe in our day, but it's at the core of the gospel message. So it's not that you could go and get freed from your burdens of sin by good works or by penance, but that you had to trust in God to free you from that sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. People are saved by grace alone from God, by faith alone our response. Luther comes to believe that he cannot earn salvation. God, through Christ, has earned it for him. It is God's action in someone's life that frees them from their burden of sin. It is not something that they can do themselves as a process throughout their life to get cleansed from it. It has to be done through trust in God. And for the rest, all these acts of penitence and acts of piety, um, those are not to obtain grace, but they're acts of gratitude instead. So that's a, that's a radical departure in, in the theology of, of the medieval church. Luther's study of scripture is leading him to a theology that challenges the very church he represents. Even so, he cannot predict how divisive his ideas will become. In the early 16th century, church and state are inextricably intertwined. They mirror one another in structure and even share certain leaders. So the church has largely bought into this medieval worldview where you have a hierarchy with the aristocracy at the top and, and the peasantry at the bottom. And the bishops would come from the higher classes in European society. And they were also often, if not always, princes. They were secular rulers as well. And that did not mean, obviously, that they were very good at their job. They simply had the money to be able to afford it. The result is a church that holds great political power in addition to its spiritual power. So, for example, in Germany, you have the princes who are allowed to elect the emperor. Of those, three of them are actual archbishops who rule as princes of their territory. The Pope himself is also a king, so to speak, of the Papal States. He rules that area as a secular ruler. With this secular power came great wealth, which many church leaders find irresistible. It was a financial boom to be able to become a bishop, because it brought with it lots of land and lots of peasants who then gave money. So. You have a church that, that is corrupted by the standards of the society in which it exists. At the same time, it's fair to say that church and state were in some ways rivals to each other before the Reformation. Because the church was a big landowner, because the church had the power of appointment to clergy in a district. Um, you have monastic orders that are very powerful. 
So when you look at the relationship between church and state, sometimes it is clear that governments were concerned about the church's power. Whether by mutual benefit or expediency, church and state function in a symbiotic relationship. When necessary, the church fights battles to protect the government and vice versa. The monarchy in return can appoint clergy and considers it a sacred duty to punish anyone who breaks the church's divine laws. It is universally accepted that there is only one true doctrine and that to reject it puts not only one's own soul at risk, but that of the entire community. The vocabulary for wrong belief is the vocabulary of contagious disease. They talk about epidemics of heresy. They talk about contagion of wrong beliefs. So it wasn't just that, well, you think your thing and I think my thing and that's fine, right? In the 16th century, uh, believing something that was not accepted by the broader community could put you in a great deal of danger. To blaspheme God is heresy, which is even worse than treason. The punishment for both is death. For this reason, the monarchy and church consider it merciful to force a heretic to recant. If the heretic repents, his or her life will be saved. If the heretic refuses, all of society is at risk. If you notice the ways of execution, they are all means of purifying. So people are burned, people are drowned, people are buried alive. And in each case, they're trying to purify the community. From the standpoint of avoiding the contagion of heresy, it makes perfect sense. But from our 21st century perspective, the, the idea of killing people because they have a different theological viewpoint is obviously abhorrent. The church and state have maintained order in this way for centuries. But the forces they seek to repress are gaining strength. The Middle Ages have given way to the Renaissance. New forms of education are leading to a greater interest in the ancient world. Prominent scholars like the Catholic theologian Erasmus are championing the cause of humanism, an academic movement marked by optimism about human nature. Today, if you say the word humanism, people think of some kind of irreligious movement or perhaps some movement that doesn't have any room for religion. That would not apply in the 16th century. Humanism in the 16th century, particularly in Northern Europe, was very much a Christian movement. And the great Erasmus, the, the leader of European humanists, was very much focused on doing his best to see that people could learn what it meant to be a Christian. You look at Erasmus, who was just as passionate as Luther about the need for reform in the church, but through his conscience and his decision, he remained within the church, although a pretty vigorous critic, all the way through. Trade routes in non-European countries are being discovered, and the groundwork for capitalism is being laid. There's all sorts of economic changes that are going on. You have, uh, in this period, the rise of the middle class, um, the rise of cities, and this middle class's ability to make money is dependent upon having free trade, having a free hand, and this is coming into conflict with traditional aristocratic land-holding authority. It's all of these factors together that just contribute to the destabilization of the medieval worldview, this kind of hierarchy that seemed to be established and unchangeable, now suddenly was changeable. For the first time ever, 
the printing press is making books and ideas more accessible. In Western Europe, you have Johannes Gutenberg, who developed the printing press around 1450. And his technology really caught on because it enabled the production of texts in a much more consistent fashion and obviously more quickly than writing everything out by hand. By the turn of the 16th century, um, texts could be printed and were printed um, in increasing numbers. We think now this is probably slow compared to the internet, but back in the day, compared to handwriting out documents, this is, is revolutionary in terms of the, the ways in which ideas can travel. Prior to the printing press, the only copies of the Bible were handwritten, usually in Latin. Vernacular translations were rare and often regarded with suspicion by the church. However, by Luther's time, translations of the Bible are becoming more widespread. And so all of these played a role in emphasizing the importance of the scripture text, distinct from uh, its context at, in, within the church, and seen as accessible as a text in itself, without, ha uh, without having to be transmitted through, let's say, a, a church authority, a priest. The movement to translate the Bible coincides with a simmering frustration with the hierarchy of the church. For more than a century, the Vatican has been riddled with rumors of incest, adultery, prostitution, and debauchery. When Pope Leo X takes office in 1513, he spends one-seventh of the papal treasury to celebrate his coronation. He quickly gains a reputation as a pleasure-seeking, double-tongued politician. Most people in Europe knew that the church needed reform. Knew that the way that the church operated was not the way it should operate, given the text that we hold to be canonical, the text that we hold to be sacred. The notion of reform within the church is nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. The Augustinians, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, you know, the Carmelites, you just go down the line, there were myriads of people uh, in the Catholic Church, and not just in the 1500s. The Franciscans, as a religious order, uh, emerged out of a call for reform, and this is in the 1200s. However, the moral corruption within the leadership is running rampant. It's in this turbulent setting that Martin Luther's intense study of scripture sets off a firestorm. In 1517, the church is selling indulgences as a kind of shortcut to forgiveness. Well, an indulgence was a, a letter with the seal of the Pope that declared forgiveness of sins. An indulgence is uh, a remission of uh, temporal punishment due to sin. Let's say that I, I break your window deliberately and I seek your pardon and you forgive me. You don't hold that against me for the rest of my life. Injustice, however, I have to make reparation. Sin leaves wounds. Once we are forgiven, we must do penance for our sins. Not because our Lord, by his sacrifice, didn't do enough, 
But this is a way of expressing genuine contrition and sorrow. Indulgences are growing in popularity. Though officially, one still must confess and repent of sins, the indulgences are a way around more arduous forms of penance. The problem with indulgences was that one of the things you could do was instead of going to your priest, you could buy a piece of paper that said you were forgiven. That gift of money could then be seen as a good work and act of satisfaction that would uh, enable you to get out of some time in purgatory. And so the Pope could issue, uh, in the name of Christ, forgiveness. This was part of the power of the church, the keys of the kingdom, so to speak. Their growing demand is a financial boon to the church. And you can see with the start of the printing press that indulgences start to proliferate as well. In fact, the first documents that were printed were not Bibles. Uh, it was, in fact, indulgences that were printed. A plenary indulgence, which is seldom offered, will release a person from purgatory altogether. It's this sale of plenary indulgences for the dead that electrifies Martin Luther on All Saints Eve, 1517. Luther is teaching in Wittenberg and he hears about this guy named Johannes Tetzel. And Tetzel is a monk who is sent on behalf of the Bishop of Brandenburg, whose name is Albrecht, to sell indulgences. And what he's basically doing is trying to raise money for both his archbishop and for the Pope in Rome. Tetzel promises that in exchange for a donation to the building of a cathedral, the Pope will release a loved one's soul from purgatory. Tetzel even has a little rhyme which translates into English. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. This indulgence was declared to be good for people in purgatory, good for those who had already died. So I could pay money to have time taken off my grandmother's time in purgatory, thus acquire the forgiveness of some of her sins through this payment to the church, which would be used to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica. This is proved by anybody's standards, and a lot of theologians find this offensive. Martin Luther founds it outrageous. Ever the conscientious monk, Luther takes action. In keeping with academic tradition, he writes 95 theses in Latin that condemn the church's sale of indulgences. He posts his theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. His 95 theses on indulgences actually was a call to debate, does the church really have the right to do this? He was not protesting the Roman Catholic Church. He had no idea of starting a, a, a new church. He was not wanting to break from Rome. And he just followed the practice of posting it on the public bulletin board and said, so let's debate it. And most of them, if you read them today, are focused on the question of indulgences. But you do also start to get a sense of some of the larger theological issues, such as the role of good works in salvation and the role of scriptures in understanding God's teaching. He asked the question, if it's really true that the Pope has the power through the church to forgive sins, why is he making poor people have to pay for it when it means that they can't put shoes on their children's feet and food in their stomach? If the Pope really loves people and he has this power, why doesn't he just forgive them? Why does the Pope want so much money? 
Why doesn't he just in love extend this grace? Luther is looking for a good, healthy debate. And what he gets is a revolution. Within two weeks, thanks to the printing press, Luther's 95 theses are translated from Latin into the common language and distributed across Germany. His ideas have found a market, and people are hungry to hear more. The role the printing press played in the expansion of Luther's beliefs was that it simply prevented people from controlling where these ideas would go. There's a saying among some Reformation historians, no printing press, no Reformation, being that if Luther and other reformers didn't have this mass medium to spread their message in different ways, it would never have succeeded the way that it did. Within a few months of posting his thesis in Wittenberg. All right, we'll uh, pick up on page 22 next week then, okay?